Please take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 7. Thank you, Matt. A balanced perspective. Verses 13 to 22 this morning. One of the most profitable things that a person can learn in life is balance. When priorities, desires, actions, thoughts, activities in one's life are situated in such a way to avoid extremes, to avoid overextending yourself, to avoid apathy or laziness, to avoid going in the extreme to one direction or another direction. Balance is an important thing, and it's an important thing in every area of life. Obviously, it's important in those secular things. As we think of balance, you can think of money, you can think of time, you can think of priorities. As a pastor, I have to balance time for the church with time for my family and with time for the Lord. As fathers, you have to do the same thing with your jobs. As mothers, you have to do the same thing with the Lord and your husband and your family. Uh, you you have to balance life and the happy life, the, the life that is is um, uh, going to be contented is a life that has found balance. So you're not overextending yourself in one way or another, and you're not taking from something needful to give to something else. But balance is also extremely important in the context of our spiritual lives. We uh, have many extremes among Christianity today, and the proliferation of information, the internet and such, allows all those extremes to come to the forefront. And what I, what I often encourage with God's people, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, is when you see two diametrically opposed ideas being espoused in Christianity, you'll often find God somewhere right about here, in the middle, that... People are living one way, and because that another group rejects that way, so their pendulum swings way over to the other end, and they take things too far. And then because they've taken things too far, this end hardens themselves and goes farther over in the other direction in order to not look like those people. And now you have people on opposite extremes when the reasonable or or, or proper place that the Lord would have us is right about in the middle. That each one has identified something that's wrong with the other and they've violently reacted against that and they've thrown the baby out with the bathwater and so now they're both out of balance. But God is a God of balance. Consider the following verses with me from the Old Testament. Proverbs 11, verse 11 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 16, verse 1. The preparations of the heart of, of the heart and man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Divers weights are an abomination unto the Lord and a false balance is not good. Solomon speaks in Proverbs about balance. And as he speaks in Proverbs about balance, about balance in what we say, about balance in what we think, about balance in what we do, which is why that middle one's in there, because the Lord desires us to have, have a, 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 the Lord is a God of balance and then He desires that these things be from Him. Oftentimes we see this idea of a false balance or a just weight. And in the Old Testament, that was the idea of commercial dealings. Deuteronomy 25 verse 13, 
warns the nation of Israel against false weights and false balances in commerce, in dealings one with another. The idea would be as follows. Let's say that uh, I'm a seller of rice and someone else in here is a seller of rice. And so we're both selling rice and we're selling it by the pound. And let's say that the going price for rice is 50 cents per pound. Okay, 50 cents per pound. So the so-and-so, Matt, let's say Matt and I are selling rice. Matt is selling rice for 50 cents a pound. So in order to get more business, I sell my rice for 45 cents per pound. So I undercut the market. I undercut Matt's Matt's price in order to take business from him and get it to myself. However, I can't really sustain my business selling my rice at 45 cents a pound because I don't have enough overhead for that. So instead, I take the ba- the weight, the the scale and I slightly tip the scale in my favor. So that if you were to take all weight off the scale, it wouldn't look balanced, it would slightly tip a little bit so that when I put the rice on, I tell you I'm giving you a pound of rice, but I'm actually only giving you nine-tenths of a pound of rice. And so I am deceiving you into thinking you're getting a pound of rice in order that I can undercut the market so that I can get more money for myself. This is what the Bible speaks of when it talks about a false weight or a false balance. It's a scale that balances and you tip the scales in your favor in order to make more money for yourself, in order to take advantage of somebody who thinks that they're getting a certain amount of weight and they didn't have any real idea or opportunity to um, verify that for themselves. You know, they didn't go to market carrying around a scale with them in order to weigh their own foods per se. They trusted the scales there. And God says, don't take advantage of people through a false weight or a false balance. This is an abomination to me. God sternly warns against attempting to get ahead in life by skewing results in your favor or by being out of balance because God is a God of justice and to manipulate things unjustly is a great evil. God is a God of truth. God loves truth. So when we are deviating from truth one way or another because we're out of balance, it's something that God does not delight in. And you'll find that throughout the Bible, this concept of balance is found not just in in commerce, but it's found in many areas of life. He loves balance. God loves balance. And those who love God have characteristically sought for balance in their lives, for justice, for clarity, not only in matters of commerce, but in every area. Agur, in Proverbs 30, wrote this in verses 7 to 9. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die, as he prays to the Lord here. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Agur asks the Lord not to be too rich and not to be too poor. He says, If I become too rich, then I will be tempted to deny the Lord that I need the Lord through self-sufficiency. And if I become too poor, then I'll be tempted to blaspheme the Lord by stealing to meet my needs. Instead, Agur says, feed me with food that is convenient for me. Give me enough to live on, but not enough to where I go out of balance. Lord, help me be balanced. And today I believe Solomon is espousing such a concept. The concept of balance. You're there in Ecclesiastes 7. Look with me beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, Consider the work of God. Who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? Solomon asks us to consider the work of God. And he does so through another question. 
Who can make something straight which God hath made crooked? The concept is plain enough. If God says something is going to be crooked, can you make it straight? Is there anyone who can ultimately resist the power and the plan of God? Now, make no mistake, God has given man a free will and has voluntarily limited himself with respect to man's free will so that you can make choices. But even within the scope of your free will, make no mistake, God is in control. Say, Pastor, how does this work? Well, God gives you the freedom to choose whether or not you will serve Him. But if you choose not to serve Him, that doesn't mean that you're deviating from God's, you're deviating from God's will, but you're still within His design, right? Because the Bible says that those who choose not to serve God will reap the consequences of such. And those consequences are divine consequences. So even if I am outside of God's perfect will for me, I am not outside of God's control because when I oppose God, God will mete out consequences upon me. And I can't beat that system, the sowing and reaping principle. I can choose in this life to pursue my will instead of God's will, but the choices will, without fail, come with divinely designed consequences because God is in control. God has designed the whole boat. This is why, as we studied last time in Ecclesiastes verse 12, when Solomon said, wisdom is a defense and money is a defense, but the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. The wise man is not the man who knows that there is a God who will judge. Romans 1 tells us every man knows this in their heart. The wise man is the man who submits himself to the God who will judge and so can avoid great judgment. The wise man identifies the reality that God, what God has made crooked, he cannot make straight. Every element of life has a design by God. And while God has given mankind the freedom to go their own way, at the end of the day, what God has made crooked, man cannot make straight. Since God has designed it, God has defined it. Since He's designed it, He's defined it. So then it is not for us to try to alter God's design. Resisting the counsel of God against ourselves, but to find that balance within which God delights. To reconcile God's design with us living our lives, and to walk in that narrow way of balance that leads to life. So Solomon says this in verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider God also has set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. A balanced perspective understands that life comes with both good and bad, right? A balanced perspective understands that life has both good and bad within it. Job perhaps said it best in his great poetic drama. He had lost everything. He'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his children. He'd lost his servants. And he had, by Job too, lost his health as well. And he sits on the ground in sackcloth and ashes, his head shorn, his clothes rent, in pain, And his wife comes upon the scene. And she says this in Job chapter 2 verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Curse God and die. He's in pain. He's lost everything. She says, why are you still hanging on to this idea of God being good and God being your God? A concept that we call throughout the book of Job in theological circles, theodicy. How to reconcile the goodness of God in the midst of man's suffering. Theodicy. And Job responds in this way, in verse 10. 
Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. And notice what he says here. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job sinned, uh, in all this did not Job sin with his lips. Can I make straight what God hath made crooked? Is it right for me that I should trust the Lord with my life when things are going well, and then turn on Him when He decrees that my life will experience pain, trial, or trouble? Will my resistance to the Lord and my anger at Him cause Him to alter the circumstances which He and His divine wisdom have ordained for me? In the day of my prosperity, I was joyful. And now, because adversity has come upon me, I'm just going to say, well, the Lord used to be good, and now He's just not good anymore? God has made the day of evil, just as He has made the day of good. Now, God is not the author of evil, but He has made the day. Evil is in this world, and there's a plan. There's a reason. He's sovereign over the day of evil, just as He's sovereign over the day of good. And if I can achieve that perspective of balance then perhaps I can recall that an unchanging God, though He has ordained the day of prosperity to become a day of adversity for me, is still a loving God. He loves me nonetheless. He has not changed, though my circumstances have changed. He has not ceased to be faithful. His love to me has not ceased and has promised to do only what is in my best good. But that comes with balance. So Solomon says, In the day when prosperity gives way to adversity, in the day when joy gives way to sorrow, consider that it is God who has made them both, who has made the way crooked. And take special note of that last phrase. It is God that hath done this to the end. We need to understand in life that what God has ordained is ordained unto an expected end. Indeed, God told the nation of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God tells the nation that his thoughts toward them were thoughts of peace, not of evil. And he says, I'm thinking of you to bring you to an expected end. I have an end for you and I've got to get you to the end. And so the circumstances that you're going through now are a part of me loving you to bring you to that end. Now that sounds all really well and good until you realize what it is that God is telling them he's going to do to them to bring them to this end. So let's pick up, let's go back in a few verses in time here to Jeremiah 29 verse 8. And we'll read verses 8 through 10. Remember we just read verse 11. Verses 8 through 10, God says this, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your uh, dreams which ye caused to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord, for thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So God tells them, don't let false prophets and false diviners fool you. Don't let your dreams, which say everything's going to be fine, fool you. You're coming into a great time of trouble. I'm going to send you into captivity. But then he tells them the other end of this. But I'm doing it that I may restore you from captivity in 70 years and bring you back to this place. Dark days were going to come to Israel, but God had not abandoned them. 
Rather, God was doing it for a reason. And what's that reason? That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says. To bring about an expected end. God says, I love you too much to let you keep going in the sin that you're, you're, you're in. So I am going to chasten you to bring about an expected end. I'm going to chasten you to bring about in you what needs to be brought about. To strip from you evil, I have to allow you to go through some pain. Solomon presents this end in verse 14. He says, The end, when the joyful day becomes a day of adversity, consider that God has set one against the other to this end, that man should find nothing after him. Pastor, what does that mean? To the end, that man should find nothing after him. There's a, a debate about what this means among Christians. Some believe that it means that God lets every man travel through uh, the various paths of good and evil, so that the process can bring you to a complete life experience. I don't necessarily have a problem with this. The Bible says that God is seeking to perfect us, that he is seeking to make us more like him, uh, that uh, he is doing the work that he's begun in us until the day of Christ, uh, and so that as we walk through this life, he's giving us adversity as as we need it to burn off the dross, and then he's bringing uh, the, the, the favorable things upon us as uh, as we walk with him, and all of it's supposed to be leading us into Christ, and I have no problem with that. It's a Romans 8.28 type of view, right? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to his promise. So it's a Romans 8.28 type of idea, and I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, some go much farther, attempting to use this verse to imply that man will not face eternal judgment because everything's going to balance out in the end and you're evil and you're good. That obviously is heresy, right? That's heresy. That's not what this is saying, that that man should find nothing after him. In other words, that man should have no punishment after him. God brings punishment on this earth. That's not what this verse is saying. We know that as we compare Scripture with Scripture. It could also mean, however, so the one idea that, that God brings good and evil experiences to bring us so that, there, so that our, our life lacks nothing, so that we've gone through everything that we need to do to be, to be right with God and to, to, to have godliness and holiness. But it's also quite possible that Solomon is calling men to gain a perspective on the day of prosperity and adversity and to understand that God has ordained both in his loving control. That no man, and this would be the idea, that no man should, that, that, that man should find nothing after him. In, in this interpretation, what that would mean is that no man can feel justified in having any charge of wrongdoing to level against God. So God brings the joyful days and the, the, the days of adversity, and God has set one against another. God has set them both there, one against another, so that no man can feel justified getting to the end of his life and saying, God, you are unjust. You are unfair. You are, you are not right. Uh, you have done wrong. A man with a biblically balanced perspective on life will understand what Job understood, that we cannot just accept God's love in the good times and then reject him in the bad times because somehow that means God is now a bad God, whereas once he was a good God. Everything that God brings into our life, when man stands before him, he will not be able to to accuse God of injustice. He will not be able to accuse God of, of wrongdoing. He will see that the scales are perfectly balanced and that God is just, that God is right. That all things happen according to his design. 
and he will be able to do nothing but say, God, you were right. So either one of those ideas I'm comfortable with in the passage, and they're a good man on both sides, and I'll allow you through the Spirit of God to, to make up your own mind or um, to be, be willing to accept both um, as possible outcomes. Solomon then gives a premise that has become familiar to us as we've studied through the book in verse 15. He says this, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Solomon speaks of the days of his life as the days of his vanity. Remember that word vanity meaning lacking that which is necessary to bring about lasting satisfaction. That's been our running definition throughout the book. Lasting that which is necessary to bring lasting satisfaction. And so Solomon says, says these days have been days of vanity. And he says that he's witnessed some things in these days. He's witnessed what we've talked about before. That there are righteous men... That they're just men and they die young. They die in their righteousness. And then they're wicked men who live long, long days in their wickedness. And that's a tough, it's a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? It's a bitter pill to swallow when you see the good die young. The righteous die young. Allison, just let me borrow a book on John and Betty Stamm, missionaries uh, in, with China Inland Mission in the early 1900s. Died very young. They were, loved the Lord, on fire for the Lord. Then we were talking about who we believe is William Borden, uh, who died young as well, as a, as a man who was going to go on the mission field. And you look and you say, why do the righteous have to die young? And particularly in the Stamps case, at the hand of evil, right? At the hand of the communist government there. And they were, they were, were, um, brutally killed for the cause of Christ. And you see these wicked people live long lives. But if we have balance, a balanced perspective that God has set one against the other to the end, to the end that man should find nothing after him, to the end that man can claim no injustice of God, to the end that man can understand that God is, is, is in, working out all things according to his pleasure, then through this perspective we can understand these seeming injustices. It's the theme which godly men of every generation have contended with. Job asked the question. We talked about Job. He asked the question. Job 21, verses 7 and 9. And then we'll jump over to verses 14 and 15. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old? Yea, are mighty in power. Their seed is established in their sight. And their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? The Bible says that God only chastens those in whom he delights. That means you as a child of God will receive the chastening of the Lord in areas where the unbeliever won't. So you see an unbeliever living in sin and you say he's not being chastened because he's not a child of God. And yet I'm being chastened. (laughs) He's not suffering, but I'm suffering. Job says, why do the wicked live? Here he is, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, ten children dead, all of his livelihood gone. He's got boils all over his body. He's in pain. And he says, but I can look at wicked people across the river, and they're doing just fine. Is this an injustice? And he says, and not only that, but these wicked people, they look over at at, at the, the believer who's suffering and say, why would I want to be one of those? Why should I regard the Almighty or serve Him? What profit do I have to pray unto Him? 
if I can live a, 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 a lengthy, wealthy life without him. I don't need God. Asaph. We'll answer these. Uh, so stay with me here. Asaph asked the question too. Psalm 73. Verses 3 to 5. He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their de- death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. And if you continue to read, if you read verses 1 through 1 and 2, if you continue to read, he, he continues to complain. Jeremiah said it too. Jeremiah 12, verses 1 and 2. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I uh, plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. God, may I have a discussion with you. I know that you're righteous, but can I talk with you about your judgments? Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper, God? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Why do, why do the, the evil men get ahead? Why does the nice guy finish last? Thou hast planted them. Yea, they have taken root. They grow. Yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth. And far from their reins. So they speak of you, but they don't live for you. They're wicked, they're treacherous. Why are they prospering, God? Can I speak of your judgments? Can I ask you a question? And yet with each one of these men, as we consider Job, Asaph, and Jeremiah, they bring this concept around. They gain balance, a balanced perspective recognizing that though God is long-suffering and the will of man is allowed to flourish in his rebellion against God, no man can make straight what God has made crooked. So Job would go on to say in Job 21, How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? This is verse 17. And how oft cometh their destruction upon them? God distributeth sorrow in his anger. They are as stubble before the wind and as chaff that the storm carrieth away. Then to verse 21. For what pleasure hath he in his house after him when the number of his months is cut off in the midst? Shall any teach God knowledge, seeing he judgeth those things that are, are those that are high? See, Job was troubled in his heart until he laid it to heart. Until the day where in his adversity he considered that God hath set one over against the other to the end that no man should find anything after him, that God will judge the wicked. Asaph came to the same conclusion. Psalm 73, verses 15 to 19. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. So this is him finishing his complaint. He finishes his complaint in verse 15, and then he says this. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How art they brought into desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. This is the wicked he was asking about in verses 3 through 5. Asaph was troubled until he laid it to heart. And in a balanced perspective in his day of adversity, he considered that God hath laid one against the other. He has set one against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. What about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 13, verses 22 to 24. We were in Jeremiah 11 before, I believe. Uh, I had to go a bit farther. Jeremiah complained for a little bit while. It was chapter 12. So now he's in chapter 13. 
And uh, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, so we might expect that. He says, And if thou say in thine heart, Wherefore come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is God speaking. Jeremiah, they will be scattered. A leopard doesn't change his spots, an Ethiopian doesn't change his skin, and the wicked will not receive good in the latter end. They cannot make straight what I have made crooked. This is balance. This is a balanced perspective on life. So David would say this in Psalm 37, verses 7 to 9. We're memorizing in Psalm 37 in our review month, right? This is a little bit before that. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil, for evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Or as Jesus would say it, the meek shall inherit the earth. A couple of weeks ago we studied how the end is better than the beginning in Ecclesiastes, right? The end is better than the beginning. Yes, the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper in this life at times. But a perspective of balance will take to heart that what God has made crooked, no man can make straight. That what God called evil cannot be made good. That what God has ordained unto death cannot produce life. That what God has ordained unto life cannot affect death. So then what should this perspective do for us? Well, it will bring us balance. And first it will bring us religious balance. Uh, in verse 16, Solomon says this, Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldst thou destroy thyself? The balanced man, seeing God's design, will not become over-righteous. Now, there's some disagreement about exactly what this means, but let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean God is saying, don't become too godly. Right? This is the whole point. We're, we're, we are intended to become like Christ. We are, we, are, we are intended to be perfect even as our Father in Heaven is perfect. It's not saying here, don't become too godly. But there are ways in this life that our attempts at godliness and piety can actually threaten our usefulness to God. This is the man who, in his quest to live a pious life and to be separated from the world, shuts himself off from the world. He becomes monastic or ascetic, as we would say. Asceticism meaning denying the pleasures of the world. Monastic meaning going to live somewhere isolated from mankind. If we do that, then by shutting ourselves off from the world, we have made ourselves unable to reach the world. That's somebody who can become a little bit over-righteous. This is the man who, in zeal without knowledge, through hyper-piety has moved himself beyond practical usefulness in the cause of righteousness. The man who is so excited about studying the Word of God that he begins to split hairs, and now now he's living in this dream world of of, of little hair splits, and he can't he's, he's lost the simplicity of the of the doctrines of the faith, to where he becomes practically useless to God because all he does is sit around staring at the sky talking about all of these hyper pious things that really have no bearing on life. Don't become over righteous. Don't make thyself overwise. There are certainly as well those who in an attempt unto righteousness can become self-righteous. Where the inward heart of love is replaced by empty uh, religious devotion. 
and outward actions. So don't become righteous over much. And don't make yourself overwise. That's kind of what I was just talking about. The man who outsmarts himself spiritually, outsmarts himself religiously and theologically, who spends all of his time studying those things which God simply has not given us enough information to know about. The man who thinks himself so confident and knowledgeable about the ways of God that he will no longer be taught. The man who spends more time speculating on the mysteries and nuances of God and falling short of God's simplicity and His character. And this can happen. This can happen to the best of us. Sometimes I see theologians and they're great men. And then I see them write a book about an obscure topic where there's one little phrase in Scripture and they take that one little phrase of Scripture and they write an entire book about it. And it's all speculations about what, what that might mean. And I think... You know, that's fine if you want to think about that in your mind, but are we becoming overwise? Are we, are we digging down deeper than God has really provided us to dig to where these are things that we can't know about and so we're spending all this time speculating and while we're speculating, we're kind of forgetting about the things He has commanded us. We're so busy reading in between the lines that we've forgotten to read the lines themselves. We can do that. So Solomon says, don't destroy yourself. That word in the Hebrew literally meaning to devastate or desolate. Some people believe this uh, question to be a matter of perspective. That the overly religious or the overwise person brings persecution upon himself through arrogance and imbalance through, uh, and re- religious zeal. If you take this verse in parallel with verse 17, you might come to that conclusion. Some believe it's a, a matter of the spirit. That when men come to the state of high religiosity and intellectualism in their faith, they inevitably devolve into ungodliness or at least ineffectiveness for the Lord. Both, I believe, would be valid interpretations. That if we become righteous over much, over-righteous, if we become wise over much, if we become over-wise, then we can become useless for the Lord. And we can destroy our effectiveness. We can become desolate in our faith. So he says, be careful that your religious zeal does not take you out of balance. Don't go too far this way. But you know what? Solomon also says, by the way, don't go too far this way. Verse 17. Be not overmuch wicked. Neither be thou foolish. Why shouldst thou die before thy time? Solomon encourages us not to let the pendulum swing the other way. Don't become so hyper-religious that you become useless to God. The, the, The phrase that's used sometimes... And I, I didn't even, I, I don't know, if, I don't like it, is you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good, if you've heard that before. I don't really like that in the sense that we ought to be heavenly minded. The people that go too far are not those that are too heavenly minded. They're the people who have missed heaven and they've shot on to something else. They're the people that have gone so far that they're, they're, no, longer, they're no longer reflecting the balance of this book. And so they've become ineffective for God because they're out of balance. To be heavenly minded is not a bad thing. To be living for the kingdom that is to come is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus, the the entire Sermon on the Mount is about that. That's okay. Be heavenly minded. As heavenly minded as you want. But don't don't go beyond that. Don't take your, your faith places where God didn't take it. That's when we get out of balance. But then don't go the other way. Don't let your pendulum swing into wickedness, into foolishness. Purposeful presumption of sin 
ignorant, foolhardy life of sin. Wickedness, that's purposeful sin. Foolishness, that's ignorant sin. Solomon warns that wickedness lends itself to death. We could visit scripture after scripture which tells us that sin leads to death. All things being equal, the life of the wise is a life of contentedness in the length of days as opposed to that of the life of the wicked. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2, we're studying this on Tuesday night, says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Uh, this is discounting the, the reality of persecution and the reality of disease. But God says, look, all things being equal, the life of wisdom will lead you to a much happier, longer, contented life than the life of evil and foolhearted, uh, fool, foolhearted living. The presence of sin in this world means there's still obedient and godly men who have been taken away before their time. But all things being equal, this is God's design. Solomon says here that the wicked lend themselves to an early death. And if you look at death statistics in this country or any other, you will find that to be true. That for all of those who die early and die young, who might through disease or, 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 or die as innocents, there are so very many who die early that might not otherwise as a result of their own sinful and foolish choices. And why should you die before your time? Why pursue a life that will place you in the path of death, spiritual or physical? So it is that Solomon calls his readers unto balance. Don't be overmuch righteous. Don't be overwise. Don't be overmuch wicked. Don't be foolish. Right here. So Solomon says, verses 18 and 19, It is good that thou shouldst take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand. For he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are a city. Right here is the fear of God. Right here is wisdom. Right in the middle. You're not out of balance one way. You're not out of balance another way. You fear God and you depart from evil. The man who fears God and follows God will rise above the extremes and will come forth of them all. This is wisdom. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that wisdom is worth more than all silver and gold, right? More than rubies. Proverbs 3 tells us that. Wisdom through balance and the fear of God, if you have the faith to believe it, strengthens a man more than ten mighty men strengthen a city. Wisdom strengthens a man more than ten mighty men strengthen a city. And why do we need wisdom so much? Verse 20 tells us why. For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. This is why we need to have a balanced perspective. Because you are not perfect. You are not you are, you are not sinless. No man is without sin. None of us is just. We are all guilty of sinners, which means we all lack the necessary righteousness to overcome these evils on our own. If we try to be over-righteous, self-righteous, if we uh, try to get into these areas where God has not spoken, if we split hairs that need not be split, we place ourselves in a, a place of ineffectiveness. We need God's wisdom. The wicked and the fool reject God's wisdom and self-righteousness, convinced within themselves either that God is not, uh, that, that God does not exist, or that they have what it takes to please Him on their own. 
And the reason why we need God so much is because we're sinners. The reason why you need God so much, the reason why you need to understand that what God has made crooked, you cannot make straight. The reason why you need to understand that God sets good days against the bad. He sets one against the other. The reason why we need, we, we dare not be over-righteous, the reason why we dare not be over-wicked is because we are all sinners. There is not a just man upon the earth who doeth good and sinneth not. The reason why we need God's wisdom is because our wisdom is inherently flawed. Our understanding is inherently flawed. If we do it our way, we'll end up here or we'll end up here and God wants us here. We need God's justification because we are not just tainted. Uh, we, are, we are not just, we are tainted by our sin nature. So Paul would tell us this, of course, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he would tell us in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is the bad news because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin being death, death is separation from God an eternal conscious torment in a place we know is the lake of fire. But there's the good news there as well, that though there is no just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, though all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, you have sinned, I have sinned, we have all fallen short, and this brings death, this brings us to a place of spiritual separation from God so that you and I cannot have a relationship with a holy God because we are sinful, because there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. God has offered us a gift. And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says in John 3, 16-18, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God sent his Son, Jesus Christ, a just man, who did do good and who had never sinned, to pay the penalty for we who have not done good and who are not just. But you know the story does not end with his death. The Bible tells us that the Son of God, Jesus by name, Three days later, rose again in victory over the grave and is alive today. Because he died, the Bible says God took your sin and my sin and put it on Christ. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of him, uh, made the righteousness of God in him. When he rose again from the dead, he claimed victory over death so that what he promised would come to pass. If he can bring himself from the dead, then he can certainly raise us from the dead as well. The power of the resurrection is eternal life. The power of his death is forgiveness of sin. Jesus did all of this for us. So that if any man, woman, or child puts his full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross, rose again for his sin, because there's nothing we can do, because there's no man that is just and sinneth not to get ourselves to God, but that's okay, because Jesus has done it for us, and we have, if we accept his gift of salvation, he will give us forgiveness of sins, Eternal life. And the Bible says we will be taken from eternal separation with Him and we will be reconciled to God so that we might have a relationship with Him today and might be with Him for all eternity in heaven in the life that is to come. 
Now, this brings us back to Romans 3.23. I gave you Romans 3.23 before. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But let's continue in Romans 3 and understand what it, what it continues to say there. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that meaning a payment, a satisfaction, through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where are we going with this? Why, why, why give these verses? Well, obviously this passage is conducive to the gospel, but, but here's the thing. Roman, or Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. But let me bring you back to Romans 3.26. Christ's righteousness is declared that he might be just, for he is just, but what else? And that he might be the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not, but through Christ we can be justified, made just in Him. That's the gift of salvation. In yourself, there is no man who is just and sinneth not, but in Christ, all those who have believed are brought to justification. We are declared righteous. Our definition that we use at at Legacy is that justification is an act of free grace where God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on behalf of Jesus Christ and his atoning work. It is not that we all of a sudden become good. It is that Christ's goodness has been accepted on our behalf. We have been justified. Christ was just. We are justified. Not by works of righteousness, lest any man should boast but by grace through faith. And do you see now why Solomon says what he says? Do you see now, if there's no man that is just, if there's no man that does good and sins not, can you see then why it's so important that we have a balanced perspective? Can you see why? See, see, God doesn't need you. But never underestimate just how much you need God. God doesn't need you, but never, ever underestimate just how much you need God. You need His salvation. And if you have never accepted that free gift, and you realize today that you are not in Christ, make today the day where you accept that gift for yourself. But brethren, if we are not just, if we all fall short then certainly we need God's way. That, that, that we, if, if God is just and we are not, and God is righteous and we are not, and God is wisdom and we are not, then we dare not be setting ourselves against God and saying, God, I see your way, but I've got a better way. We cannot make crooked what God has made straight. So what do we do? We need to recognize what God has made crooked and bend ourselves a little bit to it. How much do we need Christ's wisdom? And that's the point. Don't be over-righteous. Don't be over-wise. Don't be over-wicked. Don't be over-foolish. Fear God. Submit to His wisdom, which is stronger for you, stronger in you than ten men are, ten mighty men are to a city. We finish our exposition in verses 21 and 22. Solomon says this, Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken. 
lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oft times also thine own heart knoweth thou thyself likewise hath cursed others. Solomon says also, uh, almost in passing, it would seem here, as we try to connect that which we've just been talking about with that which we will talk about next time, he says, don't fret over what people say about you. You know that you have said evil things of others. No man is perfect. And this is the extension of him saying, there is not a just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Uh, somebody might be saying, well, I don't, I don't sin. And Solomon says, perhaps almost a little bit as a polite way of telling you you have sinned. By the way, don't get angry at people when they speak against you because you know you've spoken against others too, and that's wrong. You have cursed others also. The statement would seem to be out of place, wouldn't it? But really, it's perfectly placed. Solomon hits here on what we might call the last vestige of self-righteousness. The man who compares himself with others and says, sure, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm better than that guy who says those awful things about me. And that would work, except Solomon says, you know that you've done the same thing to others. You know you've said awful things about others, if not in word, then at least in your heart. So don't get worked up over the sins of others. Don't use the sins of others to justify yourself. Don't say, well, I may not be perfect, but I am just because look at the guy next to me. <laughs> look at him. I'm better than him, so I must be doing okay. Look at what they just said about me. See, I'm okay because they, they, they've wronged me. Well, maybe you've not wronged them, but you've wronged someone else in your heart. Your tongue has cursed someone else. There's one standard, and that standard is God's word. Standard, the, the people around you are not your standard of righteousness. Your pastor is not your standard of righteousness. On the day that you stand before God, He will not judge you against the standard of your parents, against the standard of your church, against the standard of your siblings, against the standard of your spouse or your pastor. He will not stand up there, and you will not have to be compared to them and their righteousness and say, well... He was more righteous than you, so you're guilty and he's not. That's not how it works. On the day of judgment, the book will be opened. And he will judge us according to the perfect and true standard of the word of God made flesh. Now the length of this sermon means I'm not going to formally apply this morning. But trust that the application through the Spirit of God will, will do the work. Let me make one point, however, as we close. Because I have to. Man can find lasting satisfaction. I take you back to Psalm 37. We read earlier verses um, 5, 6, 7, 8. We're memorizing, reviewing verses 23 through 25. If you haven't noticed, this is a special psalm. And David writes this in verses 4 through 6. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgments as the noonday. This is a great promise. This is a blessed way to live. But do you know what David says? brings about this way of living. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Don't try to make crooked 
what he's made straight. Don't try to make straight what he's made crooked. We live in a society that's calling good evil and evil good. And they're trying to say, this is what Jesus would do. Jesus would allow this. Jesus would allow that. Jesus would do this. Jesus would do that. This is what, this is, this is what it means to be compassionate. This is, and, and, and they are taking evil and making it good and taking good and making it evil. And they're attempting to take that which is crooked and make it straight and take that which is straight and make it crooked. And they will not find in it satisfaction. It will not satisfy. Perhaps today, as we talked about the gospel, you've been trying to make the straight crooked and the crooked straight. You've said, yep, I know what the gospel says, but I'm trying to do it my own way. I'm going to just trust. I'm going to trust that that person who told me I got saved, that that's enough. I don't see any fruit. I'm not convicted when I sin, but I'm just going to trust that that person said I got saved when I was five, so I'm, I'm saved. I'm just going to trust. I can remember my baptism. I, 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 no, no, nothing else, but I can remember that. I'm just going to trust that it all worked. It'll all work out. I'm going to do it my way. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not a drunkard and I'm not a thief. And so I'm just going to, that, that's got to be good enough for God. God's got to be good enough for me. Look at the drunkard. Look at the thief. I'm not one of those, so I must be okay. The last vestige that we all have to give up in order to come to the gospel is self-righteousness. That you are good enough to get to God. That you are good enough to please God on your own. That's the last vestige. Well, I'm better than them. It doesn't matter. Self-righteousness is sin. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is, is doing. But if we will seek the balance of God's wisdom, what we will find is a place where, whether we're talking about salvation or we're talking about sanctification and Christian living, we find ourselves in a place where we are not seeking to contend against the design of the Lord. That we understand, even if we don't always do it well, because there's not a just man on the earth who, who doeth good and sinneth not, that we at least understand this. That the blessed way, the right way, the way of prosperity is the way of God. And instead of trying to twist God into my way, to squeeze God into the box of what I want. Let's delight ourselves in the Lord. And in doing so, He will bring forth our righteousness as the light and our judgments as the noonday. Let's close in prayer.